and welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our guest author, Deacon Dennis Lambert, his book, For Real, Christ Presence in the Eucharist, published by Liguori Publications, naturally available through our EWTN religious catalog, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. Welcome, Deacon, yeah, to EWTN's Bookmark, uh, I got to see you back during the family celebration yep. last summer, uh, and then people remember back before Christmas you were on with 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 Father Mitch talking about this book. I appreciate you stopping by. You know we love books that have to do with the real presence in the Eucharist because uh, you know Mother Angelica and her focus on Eucharistic devotion. We know why it was important to her and the church. Why is it important to you? Why is it important to me? Well, the answer should be why is it important for any Catholic or why should it be? The Catechism spells it out. It is the source and summit of our faith. This is essentially who we are as Catholics, what we are as far as that goes. Without it, I cannot see, you know, the, the meaning of being Catholic. It is Christ himself, the, the ultimate gift of grace to us. Right now you're now, and you're a Thomistic scholar, aren't you? And uh, and that what you did before? No, that's not. No. So how did you, who was a did, worked in pharmaceuticals, I believe, right. uh, you know, how did you decide as a deacon at this point to take on this project? Well, I can give two reasons for that. You know, first of all, because there is such a giant need for it, mm -hmm. and second of all, you know, second reason is actually it's personal. The first reason, as far as the need. I think most of us are aware that there are so many Catholics who do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, Pew did a, a very significant survey right. in 2019. And two findings from that that, that that strike me, and the first is everyone knows about it. It doesn't strike me as much as the second one. The first mm -hmm. finding is that two-thirds of anyone who calls themselves Catholics do not believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. But that when you say anyone who calls themselves Catholic, that could be someone baptized Catholic, never entered a church, some, you know. Sure. So I'm not so hammered by that statistic. The one that does get me, Doug, is the one that, that shows that of people who attend Mass regularly, right. one third of those people do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. What do they think it is? Well, largely symbol, mm -hmm. or it's a metaphor. It's breaking of the bread is a, a community meal as far as that goes. Um, I'm not surprised by this because that was once me. You know, I understand that. Yeah. Right, you say, I once identified as a non-believer in the real presence, however that changed when I began my own objective research into the topic. In fact, you tell a story about uh, your kids, right, and a banner that your wife put together and that you titled a certain way yeah. and why that had meaning to you. Well, I'll have to give a little backstory before we yeah, get to, sure. that, to that banner. But that is the second part of where I was going in terms of the reason for this book is also personal. Mm -hmm. Again, as I said, I was once a non-believer. I'm a cradle Catholic, don't get me wrong, you know. Uh, my story is basically I was thankfully, you know, born into a family of good parents, good Catholic parents. Mm -hmm. um, went to church every Sunday. They were very involved in the church. Um, we had a Catholic grade school attached to our, to our parish as well. Um, whenever my parents had a get together, a party if you will, there were priests and nuns there. So I was very tied in, okay. you know, to it. Um, and I went to that Catholic grade school. Uh, when my kids grew up, they ended up going to that Catholic grade school. Just a very good upbringing. And then went to Catholic High School, uh, Carmel High School in Mundelein, Illinois. Two significant things happened for me there. First was I met my wife. 
Uh, it's actually a Catholic high school where the girls were on one side and boys were on the other. The only time we ever saw each other was for lunch and well, someone right. set up us on a blind date. The second thing was I had a great priest for teaching me religion in, in junior and senior year, Father Tom Drolet, a Carmelite. Right. And he just really had this way of teaching script, scripture and faith. He, you know, he, he, he brought an intellectual component to it, but also an inward component. So I was there a junior in high school, maybe I was the only guy then who was like, wow, I'm really liking this. So significant things happened, you know, where, with regards to my pathway of faith. Uh, College. Well, you, you had a typical thing where you go to college and exactly. then find yourself questioning your college, faith. So college comes right. around, and I don't know how it happens, but suddenly I have all these questions about my faith. I, I developed a little treatise. You know, here's little Dennis's treatise about the church. And Doug, I made a crucial mistake. What I did at that point, instead of taking my questions, you right. know, to the church to somebody knowledgeable, I went to the right. Uh, I was invited to play on this softball team with some friends at a non-denominational Christian church. And back then there was a lot, these were great people, nice people, best intentions, mm -hmm. you know, but there was really an anti-Catholic sentiment back right. then. And they were just overjoyed to do have you, a... Do you think there's less of that these days oh, yeah. with many evangelicals? Oh, I think And because yes. of the meeting over the pro-life issue in a lot of ways? I don't know what the reason together, is, yeah. but I'm just talking about like the early 80s. Right, exactly, there was, right. Yeah, so I went and found, found a home there. I was there for two years, you know, and they answered all my questions, believe it or not, just like this, you know, they, they were on it. Here, it's right here in the Bible, it's right. Well, proof texting is... Uh, exactly, so if, yeah. initially, this was wow this is it mm -hmm. after a while I'm like some of these things not settling so well and thankfully I was like what you call from the, the, the parable of the sower I was the seed that fell on rocky soil mm -hmm. I sprung up real quickly this is great but after a while you know so I finally did what I should have done from the beginning I went back to the church I made an appointment uh, at my parish to meet the new associate pastor to, to sit down and and surprise, me. surprise. Exactly. And, well, surprise, surprise. I go in there. This is the literal truth. I go in there and it's Father Tom Drew. Right. You know, I have no idea how he got from being, you know, a Carmelite assigned to a high school to being a... But bottom line, the well of our faith is deep. Mm -hmm. I returned to the church. In fact, I remember the day I actually physically got went back into the church. I'm walking down the middle aisle. My parents are front and center. I slip into the pew behind my dad and tap him on the shoulder. I go, Dad, I'm back. And he turns to me and says, I was just praying for you right. to return. I was back, Doug, but not really. Mm -hmm. the, those two years, you know, in the, the um, non-denominational world really dinged me. Especially with the Blessed Mother, right? Blessed Mother and the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. I carried with me forward, again, just that the Eucharist is a symbol. Right. Which brings me up to the Eucharist, the banner we we're talking about. Right. My kids ended up going to that same Catholic high school. They're making their their first Holy Communion. Each of them, my son was first, and we were asked, you know, to create a, a, a banner. You know, you put it at the your pew for your family. Right. Uh, but they were instructions were, you know, design it, you know, and then sit down and talk to your child about what it means. So my wife was the artist. She did it, but I directed her. This is what to put on it. Right. On the banner it says, I remember. And there's nothing wrong with it, but that I, what I did, Doug, I sat down to, with my children and explained to them, when you receive communion, you remember all the good things God did for you. They died on the cross. Nothing wrong with that. But as we know, I left out something very right. significant. Well, what about your wife? What, what was her take on that when you did that? Um, 
unfortunately, it goes to show the, the, the significant role a man plays in the family dynamic. Mm -hmm. She followed me. Mm -hmm. So my regrets are I withheld from my own children the truth that they were receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our, our Lord, and in the process, too, taking my wife right. down that path as well. Now, you talk about throughout the book, you, your main thing, you, you have this concept or an analogy of a relay race. Right. And, and that's how you go about, in fact, kind of teaching about the real presence and supporting it scripturally, et cetera. Right. How did you come up with the idea of a relay race? I have no idea how I came up with the idea. You know, it just kind of made sense. I wanted to, because I came to the point too, first of all, I came to the point obviously where I had a reconciliation about this is our Lord, our God. Uh, it came to me, um, you know, thinking about this term, I remember hearing about being a cafeteria Catholic, you know, mm -hmm. you go through the line, I want right. this. And I, did, and I thought to myself, that's me. I don't want that to be me. So I sat on an intellectual course to really research the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So I got to the point where I'm on my knees, my Lord and my God, a believer. So fast forward now to wanting to write, write this book. Uh, I felt compelled, again, based on the mm -hmm. need that's out there. You know, as Catholics, we are called to evangelize. You know, pa Pope Paul VI said the church exists to evangelize. St. John Paul the Great then says, our mission fields have focused. We need to be focused in our neighborhoods and in our pews. And again, with one third of those Catholics that are potentially in those pews, you know, not believing, I said, we've got to do something. I'm well, not the only one, but yeah. So. Well, so when you deal with that and you talk about evangelization and things like that, do you ever have somebody say, well, why, why do you need to evangelize? What's the reason? I mean, it might be a nice thing to do. You have found something and it's nice in your life, but is it really that important? It is very important, and not only important, but it's on us. We're baptized Catholics, we're baptized Christians. Part of that is sharing in the mission of the church, right? So how can we not? How can mm -hmm. we not, when, when we're talking about the source and summit of our faith, you know, how can we not share that or want to, to teach that, knowing that, again, our, some of our brothers and sisters in our very pews start there, right. you know, and then we go out as far as to others who don't believe as far as that goes. How can we not? Right. Now you talk about the idea of being a Thomas or a childlike in your approach. So were you a Thomas in your approach to I'm, things? Yes. Yeah, so this is just Deacon Dennis' thought here in terms of, you know, how people come and, and, and you know, about with faith and mm -hmm. what they believe. Um, I, I, I believe that God's create creates us one of two ways, either like childlike or Thomas-like. Uh, by Thomas-like, I mean like, the Apostle Thomas, you know, unless I put my fingers in your wounds, right. you know, I've got it, you know. I think the Apostle. So you were a Chicago skeptic. Exactly. Okay. Show me whatever. I, it, it's the Thomas person is the one who has to intellectualize everything. Mm -hmm. um, the childlike, I aspire to be. Now, some people might think, you know, well, you you got to be so smart, or you got to, you know, and and this is you're downplaying somebody. No, who mm -hmm. did God, who did Jesus say we need to become like a child? Right. These are the people that they don't need necessarily the books. They they look at the Eucharist. That's our Lord. Mm -hmm. How I want to be that person, but some of us God made this way, you know. And actually, right. we have to combine faith and reason. Thomas Merton says, you know. Uh, as about the role of faith and reason. You know, faith takes over where reason can say no more. So yes, I, I'm right. a Thomas. I wish I was more. Just like didn't need the. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Thomas Burton, but yet you you've got this Baltimore Catechism quote about a sacrament as an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace, which we all memorized when I was a kid. Right. Uh, so so that's a little pre-Vatican too. Are you sure you're not being? Uh, 
overly fundamentalist in your approach to the Eucharist here? I, I don't believe so. <laughs> Short answer as far as, far as I, that. I mean, to me, that's a, such a, a quick, easy definition of it. Why not go to it? I mean, again, then we can get into instituted by Christ right. to give grace and, and add these other uh, things to it, you know, uh, outward right. side of an inward reality is where it's right. going. Right. You, know. you also have a, a really nice quote here from the USCCB, and, and basically it comes down to the idea of an analogy of a hug. Explain that. Yeah. Well, again, that was kind of going more like the Thomas-like versus the child-like. Um, I'd have to actually see it to read it. Could well, it says here, yeah. we recognize that the sacraments have a visible and invisible reality, a reality open to all human senses, but grasped in God's given depths with the eyes of faith. When parents hug their children, for example, right. the visible reality we see is the hug. The invisible reality is that the hug conveys love. We cannot see the love the hug expresses though sometimes we can see its nurturing effect in the child. Yes. That's that, a really nice image. That, that's, the right. that's the sacraments. That was when we talk about that inward right. and outward reality, right. what really we're talking about the sacrament. I saw that, I was like, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So what do you say to somebody who say, as you put out here, grace is free and undeserved, but yet it requires a response. Uh, so yes. if, it's, uh, if we don't do anything to get it, and how can we have to do something to sure. get Let it? Let me take a, a step back on that, Doug, if I, if I can, as far as grace. Grace, to me, first of all, it's ultimately what we receive in the Eucharist. Some people might say, okay, we receive grace, but so what? What is mm -hmm. grace? What is this benefit? And I actually remember when I was a newly ordained deacon, my, my pastor gave me an assignment to, to do a PowerPoint presentation on the sacraments. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on that, and I know sooner or later I'm going to have to get to that question about grace, you mm -hmm. know, what is grace? And I remember getting there and then being like a deer in the headlights. You know, what exactly is grace? How do you describe it? And I thought, well, I could probably tap dance my way around it, but I felt like I don't have a good answer. Mm -hmm. Being a, a newly ordained deacon, I thought I had to have an answer. If someone came up to me, I better have. Sure. So I actually started researching what is a good definition, mm -hmm. a, a really true one. And then I came across the Catechism, uh, 1996. Uh, don't know if I nail it, but I'll paraphrase mm -hmm. it. It says grace. Grace is, is God's favor, the undeserved help that he gives right. us to hear and respond to his call to become his adopted sons, partakers of the divine nature and eternal life. When I heard that, I was like, aha, there's, there's grace also made so much sense and so relatable to the Eucharist. The first part, we don't deserve it. God wants to give it to us. Right. Thank, thank you, Jesus. It was that second part, though. It was that second part that really resonated. You know, it's the, it's um, God, God, it's, it's us responding to his call. God is, is always, calling out to us. I kind of envision that like like a radio signal. Since day one, Dennis, come this way. Trust me, it'll work out. Don't go that yeah, way. Yeah, kind of the hound of heaven approach, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. But the world's always seeking to block that that signal, right? And it, the world, well, We live in a noisy yeah. world these days. But when we receive God's grace, it gives us that ability, that second part of the definition, to hear his call, we hear that mm -hmm. signal, and then the most important thing is to do something about it. So when we receive God's grace, we receive that ability that strengthens our ability to follow him, to hear and mm -hmm. respond. It's, it's essential. This is why the Eucharist is so, so critical, why it is the source of something. You had those, that experience with the evangelicals for a period of time, and you make the point. You say, ironically, a pivotal cornerstone of the Protestant faith is the literal interpretation of scriptures. A discussion for another place in another time. The key takeaway is that the Catholic position takes quite literally the words Christ spoke, this is my body, but they're taking a literal and they're, and they're not getting that same meaning out of it. No, 
No, it's, it's, it's remarkable when you think about it because they are so literal in, in their translations. But here they, they seem to ignore. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when he says is, the Greek estin is means is. There's just no doubt about it. And then you open up, you know, so much in terms of John 6 and everything else. There's just so much in Scripture that mm -hmm. points that the Eucharist is truly the body and blood of our, our well, you Lord. You say you use the relay race imagery uh, to accomplish multiple goals in this book, a couple of goals. What we'll discover is that the baton, and we talk about the relay race, has never dropped. The message of the real presence of the Eucharist begins with Jesus himself as passed on, unbroken, unchanged, through recorded history from Christ to today. So that, that point of saying that there's this continuity in the church. Exactly. There wasn't this falling away right. or something in the after the early church fathers or exactly. after the closing fact, of canon or something right. else like that. Right. I think earlier on you mentioned what about the relay race. I, right. We never got to it, but now that we're here again, it, it's to me, I, I use the image of a relay race to really convey the points that this is truly Christ and how to follow the, the path of just kind of learning about this. A relay race has four legs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and I'm using that. And then it's it's one continuous race, not four separate races. And the key is the baton should never drop. Mm -hmm. So in this analogy that I use in the book, and that's just how I walk people through the the story of the Eucharist, is it starts with Jesus. He's leg one. You know, they say save your best runner for last. In this case, we start mm -hmm. with Jesus. What did Jesus actually say and teach? Mm -hmm. He hands the baton off to the to the, the apostles. What did they teach? Is it congruent with what he taught? Mm -hmm. The answer is yes, spoiler alert. They hand the baton on to the early church fathers. And I love the early church fathers because we have so much in writing. You know, scripture is somewhat limited, but there's just so much more writing than the early church fathers. And every single one of them writes about the real presence of Christ right. in the Eucharist. Leg four is the church today. When you look at it all in totality, the story has started with Christ and has never changed. And I did have the experience uh, in the evangelical world that uh, the belief was, well, this is what they were told me, is that, no, the Eucharist, whatever, they would, that was uh, some made-up theology. It was like the church looking for some way to explain the Eucharist. No. Right. It was what Jesus taught from day one. The priests wanted something to do to make them important. I guess. That's really what it yeah. was all about. It's interesting, too, because when you talk about it in the book with the four parts, you say that you go through the first one, two, three, and you're pretty, feel pretty fine. And you found, you said the toughest part was really the fourth part uh, of, because it's so clear in the early church right. and up to the fathers, but then from the fathers on, it's a little more difficult to show how the church's teaching continued. Well, actually, I don't know so much that, that it was difficult. Actually, I kind of shortcutted that because we actually, as Catholics today, know exactly what the church teaches. So I, I simply, in that part, it's actually the shorter part, bigger part right. is what did Jesus say. The other parts here, I'm like, we know what we teach. Well, we should know, not everyone does. But I simply almost conclude that four section with just a couple quotes from the Catechism, which again, when you read it, echoes right back to what Jesus taught, what the apostles taught, taught what the early church fathers taught. So in section one, you kind of talk of the prefigurement. You're talking about Melchizedek, uh, a name that showed up when we were kids uh, out of the blue. We didn't know where he showed up from. But, but that idea of that prefigurement, that laying out the, the future that, uh, of right. Christ's teaching. But you also refer to it then as you get into the second section, uh, the, that whole idea of an overzealous sports promoter and the actual event he or she is hyping to attract tickets. Where'd you come up with that? Well, again, I was trying to way somebody to emphasize how 
you know, everything leading up to this point from the Old Testament, you know, that it is, there's, a, there's this great buildup, but now it's payoff time. So they're hyping it, everyone's on, on it saying this is the greatest thing, but now we have to show that it is. Mm -hmm. And that leads right into leg one of the relay, what right. did Jesus taught in John chapter six. You say the key to understanding that Jesus was speaking literally uh, versus metaphorically lies when and in what context these two words he uses are used. And you have the two words here uh, with a couple of different words, but uh, you want to, uh, one's phago, is that what it is, P-H-A-G-O? Phago and, and trogon. Okay, and, and what, what is, why is that important to understand how those got used differently? Yeah. Well, this was actually one of the things that helped turn me into a, a believer. Again, I had to, the Thomas-like person as far as that goes, but as you go through, John chapter six, obviously Jesus is talking about that he is the bread of life, that mm. you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood or you won't have life, all this kind of stuff. Um, so a lot of times, again, our, our Protestant brothers and sisters will talk about it, that's all symbolic. Right. Wait a minute, we have a problem here. Not a problem, we have a solution. Uh, trogon, first of all, phago is the typical Greek word for eat. Okay. Every day, eat. Trogon is actually a word, it's derived from this, this, this bird who, who burrows into, into trees to nest and stuff like that. The way that's translated mm -hmm. is, is to gnaw or to chew. Right. So Jesus, or 16, or excuse me, 14 times during John chapter six, the word eat is used. Jesus switches though from saying fago in general terms to eat so anytime he starts talking about eating his flesh, he uses the, tro the word trogon. Now, mm -hmm. he didn't literally, it was translated, you know, into the Greek. So he, whatever word he used in Aramaic, you know, shifted the focus from just eat to chew to gnaw. So, and these are all occurring when he's talking about eating his flesh. Right. So place yourself in the crowd that day listening to this, you know, eat, eat. Now he says, unless you chew on my blood, on my, right. on my body, etc. So that's kind of a, one of the proofs that Jesus meant what he what, said. What he meant, what exactly, he said. Exactly. And obviously we, we know the famous scene with, uh, will you two leave me? You know, I mean, yes. he, uh, I mean, it was just a symbol, why would anybody leave him? I mean, in, in leg two, you, you talk about, without question, the most critical component of the meaning of the Eucharist lies within what Jesus taught himself. And you say, as noted, there are more than 100 references made to the Eucharist in the New Testament from the followers of Jesus. While many are theologically tied, not direct statements like this is my body, the number of Eucharistic connections coming from Jesus as follows after his death and resurrection are remarkable. Yes. Yeah. Now, largely when I say there's 100 plus references to, to the Eucharist, not all of them are, you know, actual, like we could say Trogon Fago. Some mm -hmm. of them are kind of, you know, um, uh, more largely interpretive as far as that, more theological. Right. But there are direct things happening that are in writing from the apostles, you know, that clearly show mm. Jesus is, this Jesus meant what he said. One of that I'm very fond of is uh, Paul's writing. I mean, the king of all apostles writes in 1 Corinthians, which, you know, was written just 20 years after Jesus' mm. resurrection. So this is baby time, infancy in the right. early church. Mm -hmm. And he, he talks, he gives the bread of life, or the, uh, the last supper, this is my body, this is my blood. Right after that, he follows it up with the, the need for you to receive the, 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 body, the body and blood were worthily, right. that you needed to discern the body and blood, and that you needed to examine right. yourself before it. 
why would anyone need to do Absolutely. this if it was just a common meal of a community or something like that? This is just 20, that's why I'm saying that baton goes, it doesn't drop. 20 years later, he, he is teaching the same thing that Jesus taught. Right, and, and, you, and you deal also in this with, uh, you talk about the Didache, the writings of the Twelve, and then uh, later you kind of focus on the Fathers of the Church, and as we talked about a little bit, that whole idea of reinforcing, and, and clearly this is what they believed at that point in time. It wasn't something that uh, somebody had to develop or that they were unaware of, right? Exactly. It started with Jesus, and there's just no, there's just no dropping of the ball or anything. It, it, the early church believed exactly that, and that's why it's, it's kind of a mystery, Doug, if how, you know, we have to wait to the 1500s for someone to, to cry foul, right. you know. Right. Exactly. But we had it all wrong. That well, that's time. why you said here at the at the end of this that section before Lake Four was much harder is traversing down the long hallway of history to look for connections to the present, which was kind of what I was alluding to earlier. My hope is that you believe in the Eucharist has been sparked and or deepened. Is that how yours was? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in terms of, of learning all this stuff, it, it's, and again, I still wish I was more that childlike mm -hmm. where I didn't need, you know, all this kind of intellectual stuff, mm -hmm. but that's the way God built me. So how did we end up having so many lane violations, uh, to use your metaphor about the relay race, in dealing with the real presence of the Eucharist that we're sitting here in, uh, in 2023, uh, time period basically having to reintroduce people to something that the church has believed and taught for 2,000 years. Well, that that's the ultimate question. We can speculate, you know, my belief is, and I think it's recognized and talked about often on shows like mm -hmm. this, that there was a period of time of poor catechism within mm -hmm. the church. I went through it. I call it the wild, wild west of Catholicism. When mm -hmm. I actually think back, you know, and, and the way liturgy was, at least, you know, where I was, and, and everything else, and then, you know, it really took me going through a formation for the diaconate to actually see, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, what, you know, what was going on there, but again, there, there was a time period where you, you, you didn't talk even about the, these most basic things. The body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ is something I didn't hear until, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was a, a, a man, you know. Right. You never heard that in the Catholic grade school I was in, you know. Right, transubstantiation was out, transsignification or some other version was Yeah, that focus there. was so on community and all right. those aspects that we almost fell into a Protestant way of thinking about these things. It's just the, the real essence and presence of our, our Lord just was never really emphasized. Right, not that those are bad things. No, but, not at but all. all heresies it, are the, are the emphasis, overemphasizing of one truth to the diminution of another truth. Exactly. And that's where you run into problems. Exactly. So, exactly. So when you decided to put pen to paper here, so to speak. How long did it take you, and when do you write, and how do you write? Okay. Well, this took, I took, it was last summer. I think it took me about three, three or four months to, to, to write, mm -hmm. to put this book out as, as far as that goes. I had no idea at the time that the Eucharist re Revival was around the corner. Right. I think that's the, the Holy Spirit, and maybe that's why I'm here today as, as right. far as that goes. Um, so uh, it was a lot of a blessing to, to be able to write. It's something I needed to do. Again, just going back to the need, my personal need, you know, how I learned this. And again, just knowing that there are right. so many Catholics out there in need of this truth. And that's how the book ends. It gives a very simple and easy way for, for people like us or anybody in the pew to consolidate this information and using that really, really race right. really helps to kind of put it all in your mind and how to pass that on. Right, and, and, and it's a small book, it's easy, it's highly readable, and it's something the average Catholic can tackle without being afraid of that. So thank you very much, oh, Deacon, we appreciate 
Deacon Dennis Lambert and his book, For Real, Christ's Presence in the Eucharist, you bet. And it's available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. Thank you so much for stopping by, Bookmark. We shall see you next time.